This is an ABC podcast. I was an executive at Patagonia from the years 1999 to 2004, 2005. And I was in charge of a big chunk of the sales. And we tragically had the events of September 11th. And on the heels of that, it was a very, very challenging uh, retail environment. People weren't buying. For the first time in my career, stores had zero sales in a day. So in that environment, I made a decision that we needed to really buckle down on inventory and not take any risks. Sales were really, really rough. And let's stick with the styles of clothing that were really safe. And in particular, safe colors. Uh, you know, gray and black. Those are what sell a lot. So now, fast forward, the next season when sales began to return and people began to return to the stores, suddenly people walked into Patagonia stores and it was not very pretty. It was filled with black things and gray things. And in giving the team one idea, one direction to go, there's not a lot of fresh thinking. There's no creativity involved. That's a former executive of outdoor clothing and gear company, Patagonia, Perry Claybarn, giving us an example of what happens when you turn off the creativity flow in times of crisis. Well, 10 years on, and we're smack bang in the middle of another crisis. So we thought we'd do a pulse check on creativity during this COVID pandemic. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life. Perry Claybarn and Jeremy Utley now head up the design school at Stanford University. They're also the co-authors of Idea Flow, a book about new ways of thinking. Well, Perry, what is that critical learning that you had? Oh, it's that you need to generate options. You need to generate ideas. And the data on this is super compelling that a lot of people think, oh, you know, if you want to come up with a good idea, if, if Perry goes back in time, yeah, maybe you should have a couple options. The data would support coming up with hundreds, if not thousands of ideas that if you want to do your best work and have a breakthrough and, you know, deliver something successful, that you'd be wise to be in a habit of generating lots of ideas when faced with problems. Isn't it? interesting how when you're in the middle of a crisis situation, how it's the first thing that goes. You say in your book that it took time for that creativity tap to be turned back on. Can we go into that? I was struck in in sort of reflecting on that and writing about it, that it's a good example of sort of singular answers early on in problems, shutting down all of the other creative input that individuals could give. One of the things we talk about in the book is, what if I'd done a better job of framing the challenge? We have a challenging sales environment. These are unprecedented times. You know, we need some ideas about how to weather it. Here's some of the interesting feedback from our stores and our, our dealers. And we don't have a lot of time, but I would definitely, I would have solicited input. I would have solicited ideas. I would have done something different. And in fact, if I think if I met a challenge like that today, hopefully I'm in you know, reprogrammed enough to do that is to think about, wow, it can be on the tightest deadline ever. And it's still a core practice to generate ideas in the face of a challenge, not to sort of jump so quickly. And I think the tendency you're getting at is the, the tendency as humans to say, wow, this feels uncertain. 
and uncertainty to most of us uh, doesn't feel comfortable. And I, I want to feel comfortable. And the certainty of having an answer, I'd like to get there. And I think the, the tools and methods we espouse, they allow you to get there quickly. And in fact, maybe one of the bigger changes I've made in my life as either a leader of other companies I've done or, or here at Stanford teaching is to have a routine around generating ideas. So it doesn't feel like, oh my God, I'm faced with this challenge. Like, I got to like now do this weird thing and generate ideas. When in fact, I've been generating ideas all the time. You know, I've been, I've been approaching problems consistently with a practice around idea generation or idea flow. And tell us why you think quantity versus quality is the way to go? There's just loads and loads of research reports and all that kind of stuff, if that's your bag, to say, hey, that, you know, if you look at people that have breakthroughs and come up with great ideas, if you dig into it, they're generating a lot of ideas. You know, the classic one is artists, right? Artists that are the most prolific and they produce the most. They actually have a practice day to day of cranking out lots and lots of material. And as a result, get a lot of things that break through. And that's Stanford University adjunct professor Perry Claiborne. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong. Perry's co-author of Ideaflow is Jeremy Utley. Jeremy also leads the D School at Stanford. Now, Jeremy, I know you love a good formula from your finance days. <laughs> so how do you measure Ideaflow? I absolutely love a good formula. Very simple example would be, you know, take an email that you need to respond to but haven't yet, or maybe yeah. that you've marked unread. Mm-hmm. Very simply. Oh, got a lot of choice yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I, I use that as an example because for me, I've noticed that that is a indicator of an idea problem. It's an indicator that I don't know what the answer is, so I get, I got to keep it on in the hopper, so to speak. So take an email that you've marked as unread, okay, and then open it. And instead of, and because of our kind of our longing to close items from our to-do list, what we tend to do is look for the right answer. And what I would invite you to do is say, okay, set a one minute timer. Mm -hmm. And instead of writing the right answer, write down introductory remarks for as many answers as possible. Could be phrases, could be, you know, whatever, right? Just in one minute. And at the end of that minute, you could say, how many different ways of responding did I come up with? That's a very loose measure of idea flow. You can do it for anything, but the more meaningful, uh, the, the truer the barometer of your actual idea flow. And then do I use this over time to see how I'm going with my idea flow? Yeah, it's, it's a loose measure to help you gauge, am I improving? Uh, there are other factors at play, obviously, even time of day, you know, chronotypes are real thing. And so you can fluctuate your capacity for divergent thinking can fluctuate even over the course of a day, similar to how you measure. If you want to weigh yourself, you weigh yourself at the same time each day. Um, you might consider measuring idea flow at the same time each day, but the basic premise is over time, you should be improving. Now, tell me about the idea then of idea quota. What do you mean by that? Simply stated, an idea quota is a daily practice we recommend where at least once per day, you deliberately flip your orientation from focusing on quality to focusing on quantity. 
We know that the single greatest determinant of the quality of your ideas is actually the quantity of your ideas. And so if you want a better idea, you approach a problem one way. If you want more ideas, you approach it differently. There's a different mindset when you're thinking in terms of volume. And yet we know empirically the best way to get to better is via more. And so the idea quota takes as a premise, your default orientation is one of quality, meaning I just need one right answer. And we recommend at least once per day, you take a problem or a question for which you have a tendency towards one answer and flipping your orientation to say, instead of trying to come up with one good one, I'm going to come up with lots of, uh, of ideas. And I hesitated there because it's so tempting to want to add a qualifier <laughs> on the quality front, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say more broadly, the number of times we tell people, you know, they say, what's the book about? We say, how to come up with ideas. And almost always someone responds with, how do you come up with a good idea? And notice what they did. They did two important things. I didn't say anything about good. And I said ideas. And what folks do is they hear the premise, come up with ideas, and they go immediately to good idea, singular. And that's the fundamental cognitive bias that keeps us from our best work. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is get people to flip and say, no, no, good or bad doesn't enter into the equation yet. And you're not looking to implement. You're just looking to create a consideration set worthy of further action. I'm really interested in the idea um, of practice because you mentioned this a lot. And, you know, as we've established, when you're always reacting to things because businesses are, are very busy and there's lots going on, there's fires to fight, then that's the time when you need ideas, but actually there's no time for that. <laughs> so, Tell me about how you encourage people to build a practice and do you have an example of someone who's successfully done this in business? Yeah, that's great. It's a great question. I mean, if you think about it, much of the methodology around innovation these days has to do with a hackathon or a sprint or a jam, right? It's almost always a compressed time period, which you've been to the D school, you know, we're big fans of compressed timeframes, but that's one tool in what should be a much broader tool belt. Mm. And the reality is, if you think about it, just to use the metaphor of exercise, right? If I ask you right now, get up from your desk and run a 400 meter sprint, you'd pull something, you know, yep. it's a Struggle. high likelihood you would, you'd hurt yourself. Right. Yes. And yet it, we take corporate athletes, we go, okay, you're totally cold. You've been in your email <laughs> now come and, you know, do just one lap around the track. You know, it's, shocker that the average output of a typical corporate brainstorm is two ideas, right? It's not shocking at all. Nobody's warmed up. Nobody's flexible. Nobody's stretched. There's no routine discipline. And so what we advocate is this notion of practice in part so that you're ready in the moment the sprint comes. It's not that we don't appreciate a good sprint, but it's recognize that there are mindsets and methods and things that you should attend to so that you're ready when the moment comes. If you have that practice mindset, that growth mindset, you think about all of the important facets of your life, whether it's health, whether it's spirituality, whether it's diet, whether it's a craft, you take an attitude of practice, even virtues like patience. Patience requires practice, right? Playing the piano requires practice. Even something like health, right? You, you, you don't just eat a salad once and you're a healthy person. <laughs> 
You don't just take a bath last week and you're a hygienic person, right? But when it comes to creativity for whatever reason, or, or if creativity is the wrong way of thinking about it for folks in business who wouldn't, you know, opt into this notion that they need creativity. If you, if you see your job is fundamentally to be solving problems, are you looking for opportunities to practice solving problems? And what we'd say is that that is a, it's an undernourished or an underdeveloped skill set. And what things like the idea quota do is they offer really simple and pragmatic shortcuts, right? So a simple example, one of our former students, we were just speaking with him the other day. He told me anytime he gets stuck on a question, he makes a three by three grid of post-its on his window. And he tells himself, I can't sit back down and continue work until I fill all nine post-its, right? And what he's done there is he's basically done an idea quota, but he's got this habitual response now. When I'm stuck, I stand. he says, first thing I do is I make the three-by-three grid of post-its on the window, and then I know my job is to fill the post-its. Love it. Doesn't have to be with good ideas, (laughs) but I'm provoking myself towards volume before I, I move back into an implementation mindset. So let's establish some of the things that we can do as a practice for idea flow. Let's start with kindling files. What are kindling files? Yeah, it's basically a document that you keep at the ready to capture errant insights, <laughs> to capture inspiration, to capture problems. You know, one of the legendary professors here at Stanford, Bob McKim, used to have design students keep what he calls bug lists which are lists, unlike the developing term now, a bug list is, you know, a list of the features of the software that's breaking. In McKim's language, you know, precedes, you know, the internet age. Bug list was a list of things that bothered you. Mm. And all of these varied and diverse inputs are incredibly valuable inputs into a creative practice. And so you look at somebody like, you know, David Byrne, for example, he keeps a file of sounds that are interesting to him. If you look at advertising executives, David Ogilvie, you famously kept a drawer full of clippings just to, anytime there's a new project, he just reach into the drawer full of clippings and see what provoked him, right? But the idea is you want to be stimulating your imagination and imagination is provoked by unexpected input. And if you know that, then one thing you can do is you can stock the reservoir or stock the pond of potentially provoking inputs, right? That's a kindling file. Lots of people do it in lots of different ways, but the basic premise is an underlying acknowledgement. I'm going to need a fresh perspective. I think, you know, I have a daily blogging practice. I can't tell you the number of times I get to the end of the day and I go, man, tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. I try to publish at 7 a.m. every day. And rather than starting from nothing, I just search in my email notes to self and just browse through things that have struck me that I've observed. And usually it comes from seeing a couple of connections and go, oh, wow, 15 minutes. It's, you know, something interesting has happened. But it's because I have that discipline of documenting things that strike me, that stimulate my imagination. And I recognize the moment that I need to be inspired, the moment of the sprint, if I don't have my track shoes in my bag, I'm not going to perform that well. Now, sometimes people do get stuck in a rut and need some inspiration. So can you explain the idea of analogous exploration? Absolutely. And again, the fundamental premise is unexpected input, right? When you're stuck, the question is, do you 
look down at your desk? Do you grit your teeth and try it harder, which probably won't work, right? Or do you look up and say, what can I do? What can I try? Who can I talk to? Where can I go? And there are a lot of tools in this genre that we recommend. And it can be simple, right? Analogous exploration is in some sense kind of the deepest and most immersive experience. You know, what Einstein used to do is when he was stuck, he would pick up a violin and he would play a concerto, you know, Bach. He, he really loved Bach. He'd play a piece and his son and his wife both recount in memoirs that the, they would often hear the violin clatter to the floor and Einstein said, <laughs> got it, you know, scribbling furiously, right? So the fundamental thing is, are you willing to recognize a different kind of thinking is required when I'm stuck. Mm. And, you know, it could be the violin triggering the subconscious. You know, Thomas Edison famously took a nap in his, what he called his thinking chair. Interestingly, he didn't call it his napping chair, despite the fact that what he did was nap, because he knew it's a different way of approaching the problem. Well, analogous exploration is a structured tool that we've developed at Stanford. We've subsequently learned lots of people do it in lots of different ways, right? As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So <laughs> this is our take on an old classic, so to speak. But the basic premise of analogous exploration is you identify the problem you're trying to solve. Say, for example, you know, in your, you've, you've built a new website and some of your user research has uh, demonstrated that folks don't deem it to be a trustworthy website. So you mm -hmm. go, okay, our challenge is how do we convey a sense of credibility or trust? Well, whatever is in your head is kind of all you got to go with, right? And so the team quickly, you know, hopefully generates a handful of ideas, some of which maybe, hey, let's try and test them immediately. If you don't feel like you got stuff you want to test, then a really simple question you can ask yourself is, who already does a good job of this? And a, a kind of a low orbit way to answer that question would be, what are websites that are very trustworthy, right? You're unlikely to learn something new. There's a, there's a lot of research that suggests that the more distant the analogy, the more divergent the output of the thought exercise, right? So we actually recommend a number of divergent inputs or analogous locations and seeking analogies that are as far away from your domain as possible. So I might say, okay, if I'm building an e-commerce website and I'm trying to build a sense of credibility and trust... Well, why don't I go to a preschool drop-off and see how the school has designed the system to make the drop-off experience feel safe for parents of preschoolers? Nice. I might go to a, a tattoo parlor and observe somebody trying to pick out a tattoo and try to understand how does this tattoo artist convey a sense of credibility or, or, a, or a hair salon and watch somebody who's trying to get a new do talk with a barber. And, and, and all of these things, what I'm looking for are not, you know, rarely can I steal something directly, you know, verbatim from one context into another. But a lot of times what, what we've identified is that there's a principle that you can extrapolate. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong and my guests today are Perry Claiborne and Jeremy Utley, who head the design school at Stanford University. Perry and Jeremy, I'd love to know, how do you get that balance right between creativity on the one hand and productivity, our deadlines, our outcomes on the other? Simply put, I think it's a constant shift of mixture. That if you're not shifting the mixture, first of all, and you're not aware that that is a mixture, if you're on a team or a leader, or let's say you go to a meeting and you're a team member, you're in a meeting every week and you feel like, man, this is kind of stale. Yeah. 
be, be cognizant. Let's get some ideas flowing. We need some ideas flowing about maybe restructuring the meeting or let's generate more material. Jeremy, you've got a build? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when Perry says when things are getting stale, you know, define stale. You know, I think in every industry, the the pace of, you know, launches, et cetera, is, varies wildly, right? You know, automakers make a new car every year. You know, publishers release books, you know, 20 times a year. Um, so sometimes the staleness may be difficult to assess. Uh, maybe another way to approach this question of balance is, where do you find the same conversation re-emerging? What we see for a lot of teams is the problems that they're solving, great, keep solving them. The stuff that they're getting hung up on, that they're wondering about, decisions that they find themselves kicking the can down the road on, that's an indication that maybe there's something a little bit deeper going on there. And for us, we advocate this kind of just dynamic oscillation between generating and experimenting, coming up with ideas and quickly implementing them in cheap and scrappy and low resolution ways, right? And so if you find, hey, we keep kicking this decision down the road, you know, we advise management teams that oftentimes they find we're stuck in analysis paralysis. We don't know what to do. And a lot of times the meeting ends with a resolution to have another meeting. And if you find, okay, we keep resolving to talk about this more next time. Well, here's a simple question. Is there going to be new information? In our perspective, if there's no new information, there's no new conversation, right? And not, no disrespect to the fact that subconscious processing needs to happen, that offline marination, that's all well and good. But if you're finding that that's happening a lot in the context of your team, the reality is you're probably you're, you're in a rut, right? And either you need fresh ideas or you need a bias towards some kind of scrappy experimentation. And the beauty of the tools that we teach at the D-School is folks can create data and bring new information to a meeting in a matter of days. It doesn't take months or years. It's a matter of days, but it's a fundamental rewiring of how we, whenever somebody says, let's talk about this next week, before people nod their head kind of, you know, uh, and agree, they should say, wait, who's going to own taking some kind of action that creates some kind of information that enables us to have a new conversation? If there's not that clarity, forget it. Interesting words there, some words like rut and bias. Can you explain some of the science behind what gets us in a rut? What's our brain doing? And how do we um, bring awareness to that? One of the most psychologically distressing phenomena we experience as human beings is unresolved questions. It's psychologically distressing. And so what we do is we seek what is known as cognitive closure. Psychologist Ari Kruglowski coined this phrase in, I think, the 1930s. But the basic idea there is we're always just trying to converge. We're always trying to converge. And yet what we know some of the most radical and creative thinkers do is they leave their options open and they're much more open-minded. I mean, you think about even that phrase cognitive closure. It's effectively a tendency towards closed-mindedness. We are all, we have a tendency towards closed-mindedness. And if we become aware of that, and it can manifest itself in crazy ways, right? Like I gave this this weekend, I'm frantically packing to go on a hike with my children and I'm packing all of our, you know, lunch items in a a tote bag. And my wife just popped in. She goes, hey, the um, backpack cooler would be a lot better. You know, and objectively it's true, right? It's a cooler. It's going to keep the food cold as opposed to the canvas thing I was packing. And it's a backpack, meaning I can wear it. I can be hands-free. We have a toddler. That'd be great. You know what I said? I No, 
I'm using this canvas bag. You know, objectively, if you're watching the scene unfold in my kitchen, you're like, why did you turn down an obviously better idea? Because in my mind, I'm like, I got to race out the door. I don't have time for new ideas. It doesn't matter if they're better. And when we recognize that we're all afflicted by that, and it actually, it starts with us, right? In organizations, there tends to be this kind of generalization to a policy or procedure or mechanism level. And what we find is really important is actually to start with yourself. You want to change your company, change yourself. You want to change the world, change yourself. And to say, okay, where am I finding these tendencies towards closed-mindedness present in my own life, in my own reaction to my family, to my team, to my boss, to my subordinates, et cetera? Then you can start to make progress because you can start to say, well, wind the clock back. Why did I respond that way? And how could I respond differently? And that was Stanford University D-School adjunct professors Jeremy Utley and Perry Claiborne. And their book, Idea Flow, will be out next year. I'm Lisa Leong. You've been listening to This Working Life. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.